Good morning, ladies. If this is too loud for you, let me know and I'll turn it down because I didn't have a chance to really check the volume with people in the room. So, okay, first thing we're going to do is have a little humor because this is pretty deep subject. So we're going to just have a little humor. Excuse me, I'm going to lower that down for the echo here. Okay, we're still going to try to do that without an echo this time. All right. One day, there was a group of scientists, they got together, and they decided that man had come a long way, and you know, it, since they come all that way, they really didn't need God anymore. So they picked one scientist, and they said, go tell him we're done with him. So the scientist walked up to God and said, well, we've decided that we really don't need you anymore, so you can just go on and get lost and do whatever you do. God said, God was listening very patiently to what they had to say, and he looked at the man, and after the scientist was all done talking, God said, very well, how about this? We're going to have a man-making contest. And the man replied, that's okay. You know, we've got cloning and all that kind of stuff. And he said, okay, great. But God said, now we're going to do this just like we did back in the days of Adam. And the scientist says, sure, no problem. And he bent down and he grabbed a big handful of dirt and God looked over and he went, oh, no, 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 no. You've got to get your own dirt. <laughs> now, thinking of the fact that you have to get your own dirt, think about the creation and all that God has done up to this time. Well, we're about to see what God's going to do next. And that's in Zechariah 13 and 14. Okay, so buckle up. The central problem of the Old Testament has always been sin. It began in the Garden of Eden, and it was paid for by the blood of Christ in the New Testament. But it won't be eradicated until the day of the Lord when Jesus returns to judge at the end of the millennium. Because of Israel's sin of disobedience, Israel needed cleansing. God did give them promises of this cleansing through his prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 5, 5. Now, so, now let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and, I, and it will be consumed. I will break down its walls and it will become trampled ground. Here Isaiah tells Israel that God planted a vineyard, Israel, and it got wild plants instead of good grapes. So because of this uh, rebellion, God judges Israel and withdraws his protection. Isaiah verse 6, I will lay it waste. It won't be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. It will also I will also change the clouds, and no rain will rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. These verses predicted the Babylonian invasion of 586 B.C. Now, chapter 12 of Zechariah tells us of the attack on Jerusalem during the time of the tribulation. Now it seems that God is finished with Israel. Oh, no. But just read Romans 9 to 11. God may have set aside Israel for the church age, but his grand plan is to graft them back into his vineyard. Zechariah 12, 12 tells us of Israel's chastisement in verses 1 to 9. 
their mourning in verses 10 to 14 as they see him, him who they pierced. There is the hope. There is no forgiveness until there is sorrowful repentance. The sorrowful repentance seen in chapter 12 is the basis on which the forgiveness in chapter 13 rests. Our God is a God of forgiveness. When God forgives, he blots out the sin. It's gone. Psalm 103 describes the nature of God's grace. Verses 8 to 9. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and he will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. The message of Zechariah 13, God is a God of forgiveness. Zechariah saw a wonderful day, a day in which Israel will be cleansed. Zechariah verse one, 13 verse 1. In that day, a fountain will be opened to the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and impurity. Zechariah tells us that this cleansing has multiple parts. First, it's the cleansing from defilement of sin, verse 1. In that day, a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. These words tells us that there will be a fountain for both royal and common people. Solomon said that he, when he dedicated the temple, we all sin. Paula reminds us of that in Romans 3. Now that being true, we all need that cleansing. Zechariah chapter 3 had a vision of Joshua. He was there in filthy garments. He as priestly Israel, needed cleansing from the sin of disobedience, hardness of heart, and rejection of their Messiah. So here in chapter 12, um, we have this promised fountain. This fountain not only will be gush gushing forth, but it will be opened and will be a continuous flow. Actually, now that the fountain, we know that the fountain was opened on Calvary, the fountain of cleansing is Christ's shed blood. Since then, it has been opened to the entire world for the cleansing of sin. Israel, except for a few Jewish converts, had, uh, never had access to this fountain until the time spoken of in, Je in Jeremiah 13 due to the hardness of her heart. In addition to sin, the second thing Israel will be cleansed of is false prophets. Israel's biggest sin was idolatry and false prophets. The false prophets were behind the idolatry and behind the false prophets were unclean spirits. Verse 2, it will come about in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols from the land and they will no longer be remembered. And I will also remove the prophets and the unclean spirits from the land. Here, Israel gets cleansed of both idolatry and unclean spirits. But will there still be sin? Of course there will, because man that exists then will still have a sin nature. But that is resolved at the end of the millennial age. Ultimately, 
when the Lord returns, he binds Satan and his demons and casts them into the lake of fire. But during this time, there will be such hatred of false prophecy that parents will rise up against their children. Israel will now obey the commandment to kill the false prophets, even if the false prophet is their child. Verse 3. If anyone still prophesies, his father and his mother who gave birth to him will say to him, you shall not live forever. You have spoken falsely in the name of the Lord. And his mother and his father who, has give, who gave birth to him will pierce him through when he prophesies. They used to say they had to be stoned. Here, they're going to be pierced like they pierced their Lord. So these false prophets of that time will discard their identifying hairy clothing and regard and try to hide from the, their death. Verse 5. But he will say, I'm not a prophet. I'm a tiller of the ground. For the man sold me as a slave when I was a youth. And one will say to him, what are those wounds between your arms? And then he will say, those which which I was wounded in a house by my friends. These false prophets will claim to be farmers who have been wounded by friends because you see pagan worshipers used to cut themselves thinking that it would enhance their experience. Deuteronomy boldly prohibit, prohibited this. Some commentators view this last uh, verse as a statement about Christ but we have to see that Christ was never a farmer, nor was he ever sold as a slave. And all the other things that we can say about that, we're just moving on. How does this cleansing occur? Israel is cleansed by the death of the shepherd, verse 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against the man my associate, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, that the sheep may be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. Zechariah returns to the poetry seen in chapter 12 about the shepherd, to the time when Israel will be scattered to the rejection of their good shepherd. Their cleansing will come through the death of this very same shepherd. In these verses, God speaks. Jehovah is the speaker, and Jesus is the one spoken of. God is unsheathing his sword and smiting his shepherd. The sword is a violent instrument of death and a symbol of divine wrath. Did you get that? God is striking the shepherd. This is an amazing statement because you see God called for the death of Christ. God is striking his only son and he did it for you. God did this. His love and mercy is beyond measure. God strikes out against my man, my associate. Those words make him God's equal. What a fantastic statement about the deity of Christ. Jesus, being God, died for us. The rejection of Christ as Savior caused a worldwide dispersion of Israel. We know that Israel would be saved from the scattering, a cleansing from the dispersion. God will bring them back. And we can see evidence of that, even some of it now. This verse also states that God's hand is turned upon the little ones. 
The little ones are the believing remnant. The term turned upon is used in the Old Testament to signify chastening judgment. Even the believing remnant will suffer persecution. We can see in the New Testament, Christ said, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. That persecution continues from then till now to believers, Jew or Gentile. God sees that Israel is brought through that devastation of slaughter, verses 8 to 9. I will come about, it will come about in all the land, declares the Lord, that two parts will be cut off and perish, but one third will be left in it. And I will bring the third part through the fire, refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name, and I will answer them, and I will say, they are my people, and they will say the Lord is my God. During the time of tribulation, only one-third of the Jewish nation will be spared the slaughter. Yet they will be purified by the fires of affliction, just as gold and silver. Two-thirds will die before, that, before Christ returns, and only one-third will repent, as we have seen in chapter 12. They will be tested in ways we even cannot even imagine. In the Gospel of Matthew, it states that nothing like this has occurred since creation. It's only by the mercy of God that any survive at all. These are the first living human beings to inherit the new kingdom. There will be individual... First, there must be individual repentance. Then a personal salvation through faith and faith alone. The nation will be saved one profession at a time. They will call on my name. I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. This chapter gives us hope as Zachariah's name infers God remembers Proof that our God truly is a God of forgiveness. So far, we have seen Israel punished for their sinful disobedience and hardened hearts, followed by their mourning and acknowledging the one whom they pierced. This mourning brought about acknowledgement of their sin and repentance. Now, chapter 14 is the climax to it all. The theme of this chapter encompasses the sweeping time from Zechariah to the establishment of the millennial kingdom on earth, which is, as we look at it, the end of human history as we know it. This chapter has drawn many interpretations, and many of them see it as figurative. In my research, humble though it may be, I have found that the interpretation must be literal. Even Martin Luther said it must be literal. This was after he first tried to approach it as figurative. A figurative approach leaves you with many problems that are unsolvable. Covenant theology does just that. It becomes a guess on its meaning. And the literal approach, it takes it as written. And then it lets the Spirit of God figure out how it all is going to come to pass. David Barham took a literal reproach in 1919. His literal interpretation has come to pass perfectly right up to this very time. 
In chapter 13, we have the armies of the world gathered against Jerusalem. This is a terrible devastation and seeming victory by the Antichrist and his prophet. This where we began, this is where we began, uh, we begin the chapter 14. God's plan for his elect, his preserved, and his redeemed Israel. Verse 1. Behold, a day is coming before the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. It says, behold, it wants to get your attention that the day of the Lord has arrived. Here we're talking about a period of time, not just a day. God's time is over. Man's time is over, and now God's time begins. This being the time from the rapture of the church to the end of the millennial kingdom. Here in Zechariah 14, we are at the time of Daniel's prophecy when the four armies of all four directions are poised to, faint, to fight against small Israel. The war is, is centered on Jerusalem, his chosen, but will extend for 200 miles in all directions. Who comprises this army is a controversy, again, and the people, um, and this, it's a total study in itself. We don't even have the time to begin that here. Chapter 14, verse 1, says the battle of Jerusalem has been fought and the people are reveling in victory. They are confident and smug. They're dividing their spoils. Here is where God turns the tide, verse 2. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravaged, and half of the city exiled. But the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Notice the first part. God had gathered the nation here. The armies of the world are there because he brought them here, there to be used by him as a chastening tool for both Israel and ultimately for all the nations. Jeremiah 30, verses 5 to 7, it talks about the time of Jacob's trouble. We can see, for we can see this come to pass in this verse. The city captured, houses plundered, women raped, and half of the city exiled. This includes the third of the Jews that are miraculously spared. Here in Israel's darkest hour, we have verse 3. Then the Lord, announcing the Lord's ready for battle. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on the day of battle. Now, direct personal intervention of God in the person of Jesus Christ comes to prevent total annihilation of his people. Verses 4a. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. God returns to the Mount of Olives, the place of his ascension. The verse states that God comes and that he comes in human form with feet to touch a mountain. Jesus is God. The last part of the verse tells us what happens when he gets there. And the Mount of Olives will split in the middle from east to west by a very large valley. 
so that the valley of the mountain will move from the north and the other half toward the south. Now that's some spectacular event. This event is predicted by both Micah and Nahum, but is also predicted in Revelation 16, verse 18. This is the same time period where the final bowl is poured out and Christ returns. Wow, what an entrance. This event, or earthquake, forms a valley in front of Jerusalem. Miraculously, this forms the valley of escape for his remnant in Jerusalem. You see, the mountains have been hemmed in. Joel calls that valley a valley of decision where God judges the nations after his people are safe and have escaped. Just as Pharaoh was judged as he judged as he chased Israel, so will these nations be judged in this valley. Verse 5. He will flee by the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come. God proclaims the deity of Christ. He will come in battle regalia as described in Revelation. And all the holy ones will come with him. References in the Bible tell us that he comes with his angels and all his saints. It will be the Lord and his righteous army riding out of heaven on white stallions dressed in white. Now you get to be there, Colossians 3, verse 4. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Are you ready? We, if you have not come to faith in Christ alone, you may be there, but unfortunately you won't be in his army. When this occurs, the remaining remnant will look up and see whom they pierced. They will mourn as for an only son, and the events of chapter 12 to chapter 13 Verse 2 will then take place. Now, there are many natural phenomena taking taken place all while this is happening. Verse 6, in that day there will be no light, and then luminaries will dwindle. All the lights will go out, and heaven will be black. There are many references in the Bible that describe this event. Time prevents me from listing and even reading them all today. But my favorite is Revelation 6, verse 12 to 14. I looked when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair. And the whole moon became like blood, and the stars fell out of the sky. God, who turned on the light of the heavens in creation, turned it off. The wonders continue, verse 7. It's a unique day, a new day. It will be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but it will come about that at evening time there will be light. Here we have Christ's glory lighting up the world, and it continues. Jerusalem will be changed, verse 8. 
And in that day, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half toward the western sea. It will be in summer as it is in winter. A spring will gush forth from Mount Moriah, and it will run east and west. This physical river will feed the Judean desert, and it will bloom as been prophesied. It will also be a living spring, a constant flow. Ezekiel 47 says that there will be living streams to gush out of the sanctuary, living water. The New Testament refers to living water as the source of eternal life. Now with all that completed, the focus changes to crowning the Lord as king, verse 9. And the Lord will be king over all the earth in that day. The Lord will be the only one, and his name will be the only one. You see, he will be king, and his name will be one. One king, one religion, over all the earth. The word one in Hebrew speaks of a uniqueness possessed only by Jehovah. One king that is God, worshipped by in only one religion, by everyone now occupying earth. Finally, as the newly crowned king, Christ sets up his kingdom, and this happens next. Verse 10, all the land will be changed into a plain from Geba to Ramon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem will rise, and it will remain on its site from Benjamin's gate as far as the place, from the first gate to the corner gate, and from the Tower of Hanel to the king's wine presses. This is amazing. The entire area all around Jerusalem will become a plain, which is now unbelievably mountainous. Jerusalem will remain lifted up to stand apart. His holy city, built in size and prominence to be inhabited peacefully by him. Think of it, verse 11. People will live in it. There will no longer be a curse, for Jerusalem will dwell in, sec in security. No more curse. King on the throne. City secure and at peace. But what will happen to all those nations that are still there? Well, now Lord deals with those nations in the judgment of verses 12 to 14a. Now this will be the plague with which the Lord will strike the peoples who have gone to war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they stand on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouth. It will come about in that day that the, there will be a great panic from the Lord and will, this will fall on them. They will seize one another's hands and the hand of one will be lifted against the hand of another. Judah will also fight at Jerusalem. This plague that some believe to be the very wor a word of God will withdraw life so fast that they will become standing skeletons. And if this is not enough, this will create such a confusion and such a panic that will, the people remaining will be killing each other. The empowered remnant Jews will return. They will return to fight the enemies of their Messiah. After the enemies are defeated, we get the gathering of all the world's wealth. The entire world's wealth is surrendered to the Lord as king. Verse 14b, And the wealth of all the surrounding nations will be gathered, the gold and the silver and the garments in abundance. 
While gathering the spoils, they will notice that the plague touched everything, not just the people. Verse 15. So like this plague will be the plague on the horse and the mule and the camel and the donkey and all the cattle will, that will be in those camps. Now you see, now that all that is done, we can now focus on what a commentator calls the character of the kingdom. This is telling us how God's kingdom will work verses 16 to 19. Then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate this, uh, uh, this feast of booths. It will be that whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up or enter, then no rain will fall on them, and it will be the plague with which the Lord smites the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. You see, the Lord sets up his kingdom, and in this kingdom there will be worship. There is no option. If you don't worship and the famine doesn't get you, the plague's going to. So there will be celebrating, like, just like the celebrating they did in the wilderness when the Lord was there and tabernacled with them. He is with them again, but this time he's a ruling king with an iron rod. Now, if that's not amazing enough, we have verses 20 to 21. In that day there will be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. And the cooking pots in the Lord's house will be like the bowls before the altar, and the very cooking pots in Jerusalem and Judea will be holy to the Lord of hosts. And all who sacrifice will come and take them and boil in them. And there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord in that day. The phrase holy to the Lord were the words placed on the turban of the high priest to designate him as set apart, unique, holy. So everything at that time will be holy to the Lord, even the bells on the horses and the pots in your kitchen. Nothing secular exists. Everything is holy to the Lord. Zechariah closes by saying that there will not be one Canaanite there. Canaanite being used as a figure of speech to classify an immoral or spiritually unclean person. Everything will be holy. You see, the Lord wants his people to be holy. He had a plan before time even existed for that to occur. The theme of the entire book of Zechariah is Christ. We got a chance to see this in our study. This promised time is coming. You certainly want to make sure that you're going to be there. And there is only one way to make sure. If you have not repented of your sin and called upon Jesus as your Savior, please do it now. There is no time because his death is your ransom and his promise is eternity with him. Let's pray. Dear precious Father who remembers and forgives, please look down upon all of us here today. Rain down that mercy and provide grace to all who call upon you. We trust in your promises. May we be among those who return with you on that very glorious day. 
And we pray this in the name of your awesome son, Jesus, your son, our Messiah. Amen. Thank you.